Welcome to the LSE. Uh, I'm Tony Travers from the Department of Government and Head of British Government at LSE. And I'm really here this evening simply to introduce uh, this evening's event, which is to uh, coincide with the launch of this book by uh, Sir Michael Barber, who is here. The book is called How to Run a Government So That Citizens Benefit and Taxpayers Don't Go Crazy. Uh, which is a good title, and clearly uh, it's a highly appropriate time to be publishing a book with that title, given that we are running up to a general election in which all the parties who are fighting this election find themselves in the position that, one way or another, they're going to have to constrain the size of the state for some time to come, and to do that in a way without raising taxes on the overwhelming majority of people, and that leaves as to only one way forward, and that is how to get either the same state for slightly less money or a better state for about the same money. That simple logic now binds, I think, everybody fighting the coming general election. Um, we will hear from uh, Michael Barber in a moment, and then uh, after that uh, there will be a conversation led by Sir Jeremy Hayward. Michael Barber, of course, as it says here, um, has had a distinguished career, currently Chief Education Advisor to Pearson, but before that had a career particularly during the last government, particularly the Blair, the Blair government, and has also been uh, working, has worked with McKinsey. Um, Sir Jeremy Hayward uh, was appointed Cabinet Secretary in December 2011, and uh, towards the end of last year, took on the title of Head of Civil Service once again. Uh, so a distinguished panel, distinguished uh, author, we'll hear from them in a moment. One thing I must just say before I leave the stage is that at the end of the event, you won't hear from me again, but at the end of the event, there will be an opportunity to purchase the book outside, should you wish to do so, why don't you do that, and then you can come back in here, and should you wish, uh, Michael has kindly agreed to sign them, if you'd like that. So, uh, with no more ado, I will uh, pass on to uh, Jeremy Hayward and uh, Michael Barber. Thank you, Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you very much, Tony. I'll be very brief, because no one is more uh, impatient to understand how to run a government than I am. I've been... Uh, <laughs> Practicing, practicing for about 30 years, but uh, you're never too uh, old to learn some new tricks. So uh, I'm going to be listening very intently and taking very careful note. Uh, when Michael joined the civil service in 1997, I was very intrigued to meet him. Um, not because of I, anything that he might have achieved as an educational specialist, anything he might have written and so on. The simple reason was this, that he went to my old school, which is a very small uh, not particularly high-performing school, Bootham School, York, Quaker School. Um, so we didn't have many successful uh, exports, but Michael was a star. Michael, came, Michael was about as good as it got for Bootham School uh, in those days. Uh, so meeting the great Michael Barber uh, was a sort of huge privilege for me uh, back in 1997, not the least because he was my father's favourite pupil, or one of his favourite pupils. My father was a teacher at the school. Unfortunately, he taught English rather than anything useful. Um, but, uh, and I think, Michael, actually, you went on to study history, which I think is, is probably clear to anybody who's uh, dipped into his book already because it's peppered with interesting historical references. Anyway, it was wonderful to meet Michael in 1997, and I passed across several times in that first Blair... Uh, term as he grappled with the really difficult task of, Im of improving primary school standards in Britain. Um, 
we came across each other a few times, but I think it's fair to say, Michael, we really didn't start working very closely together until 2001 when we worked together very much on the setting up of the delivery unit. And I think the impetus for that very important moment in British governance came probably, I think, from two strands. Firstly, um, I was working obviously closely with Tony Blair at that time as Principal Private Secretary in Number 10. And I think it's fair to say that both he and his close team, myself, Jonathan Powell, a few others, David Miliband, had got increasingly frustrated by the inability... Uh, to get results out. Uh, the first couple of years, the Conservative, eye-wateringly tough spending uh, ceilings were uh, inherited, and there was a sort of acceptance that not much was going to be achieved by way of huge improvements in the public service outcomes in those first two years. In 1999, there was a big sort of letting out of the uh, spending uh, constraints with a big set of spending numbers announced. And I think people just sort of sat back and expected then from 1999 that a sudden surge in public service outcomes would be uh, seen. But it just didn't happen. So we had uh, what was supposed to be the year of delivery became a year of sort of frustration. And by 2000, um, in number 10, we were scratching our heads. We had the Treasury had tried to invent public service agreements. We'd started actually, if you remember, Michael, having a series of slightly embryonic stock-take meetings with yourself, David Blunkett, uh, Chris Woodhead, uh, Michael Bishard, the Permanent Secretary of the uh, Department for Education, or whatever it was called then. Um, and so that, that was a sort of embryonic uh, attempt to start to understand what was going on on the ground. Um, but really, uh, we were sort of gnashing our teeth. John Burton and I were summoned by the Prime Minister to try and develop a, a new methodology of government. Uh, and I think we probably did recommend the establishment of a delivery unit, though we probably didn't call it that. But we were sort of slightly flailing around. And then you and I met, I think, famously in Churchill's Cafe in the election campaign of 2001, because uh, you'd had some very similar thoughts. And the second, so the second sort of impetus to all of this was actually the work that you and that coalition of forces had actually done in, in the Department for Education in that first term, where you had literally uh, transformed a pri a primary uh, outcomes in literacy and numeracy from less than 60% of 11-year-olds getting key stage two at the right level to somewhere closer to 75 or even touching 80%, which in one parliamentary term is a remarkable achievement, the like of which we don't often see in any period of British government. So we could see what success looked like in the Department for Education, we had a clear need to do something about delivery across the board. And those two insights really came together uh, around the time of the spring of 2001. Uh, and then Michael took the, the, the idea forward with great elan. So we worked very closely together on that in uh, 2001. And I'll leave him to sort of draw his conclusions from what worked from that. But from my perspective, uh, I think that things I would point to very briefly were, first of all, and absolutely crucially, prime ministerial backing on a sustained basis. The fact that everybody in Whitehall knew that Tony Blair really cared about the delivery unit, really cared about what Michael was doing, was absolutely essential. And it wasn't just some passing moment. It lasted the whole duration of Tony Blair's continuing premiership. So having that prime ministerial backing was crucial. Second absolutely crucial thing was prioritisation. The temptation across Whitehall is to say that uh, you know, everything is sort of equally important. We basically took the view from the Prime Minister downwards that if this was going to work, we really had to narrow down to a very small number of priorities. And that didn't mean to say that everything else didn't matter. For, exa for example, the Iraq war wasn't one of his priorities. You know, we, had 12, we had 12 priorities, Michael, or maybe 14, I can't remember. But it was a very small number. Large numbers of departments weren't covered at all. Didn't mean to say we didn't care about them, but he just felt that if he was going to make real progress in some areas, he had to narrow down. So prioritisation 
and very clear targets in those areas. Third big thing, management information. Without proper management information, without a trajectory as to what we were trying to achieve by when, how on earth did you know whether you were actually achieving what you wanted? So with no apologies, we, this was a very data-rich, very numerical set of uh, submissions that would come into, from, from Michael to the Prime Minister every, every week, every month, uh, and we got into that sort of routine of having regular numerical assessments as to whether we were on track or not. And actually the final thing I would point to, which has stayed with us all the way through the different twists and turns of the implementation unit, what we now call mystery shopping, what in those days was more overt, just getting away from the Whitehall desk, going out into the field, talking to our teachers, talking to health service workers, actually looking for oneself at what was actually happening, rather than just taking on trust from the department. So it's supplementing that management information with some real-world anecdote, some real-world knowledge of what was actually happening on the ground. So you could then confront the department with the information as to what was happening. So some very simple things if you actually set them down on a piece of paper. But my goodness, they were transformative. And in fact, the only question for me when I left in uh, 2003 to go into banking for a bit... Um, well, there was no question about that. By that stage, Michael and the delivery unit were very well established. The interesting question was when I came back from banking in 2007, more or less the delivery unit had sort of faded away. And it wasn't quite true. There was still a delivery unit in 2007, but it was nowhere near the same force as it had been when I left at the end of 2003. So amongst the many questions maybe you can answer for us, uh, Michael, in the next 20 minutes, is why it is that something so successful as the delivery unit, we have to keep on earning the, 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 the reputation, the right to be sort of listened to as each Prime Minister comes in. Exactly the same happened with David Cameron. It went into a, a period when effectively we had to close it down and reinvent it under a different name, the implementation unit, uh, and now he's a very, very firm supporter of the concept. But that wasn't taken for granted at the start of his premiership any more than it was at the start of Gordon Brown's. So there's a learning process each time, it seems. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand over to you, and then we'll uh, hopefully throw it up to the audience. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Jeremy. Having heard that account and Jeremy's um, reminiscence of his time at school, I realise that the content of the book I owe to Jeremy and the grammar, spelling and writing I owe to his father. Um, so um, thank you to both of you and, uh, and the Hayward family in general. Um, he was a wonderful English teacher, incidentally, um, who taught me, among other things, uh, to love the play Macbeth. Uh, but anyway, he was fantastic. Um, it's actually quite daunting because there's a lot of people in the audience who I know. There's a lot of sort of peers. There's people from the original delivery unit. There's people from my distant past. But the most daunting thing I have to tell you is this is the first time I've done a lecture in front of my grandson who's up there. Uh, and... Um, I'm hoping he might want to uh, come back to the LSE one day. You never know. Anyway, it's very daunting. So thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. And thank you, Jeremy, for the introduction. Thank you to Penguin for putting the book together and putting this occasion together with LSE. Uh, thank you to my team in uh, Pearson who have helped organise me and get me here and uh, organise the whole thing. And thank you all for coming. Um, I want to give you a kind of 20-minute overview of the book, not going through, not doing an academic lecture, the book is a combination... First of all, it's global, so it's not just about what Jeremy was talking about. It's about how governments do delivery effectively around the world. It's got examples from every continent. It's also got examples from history, um, which, as Jeremy said, I studied and, uh, and love reading. And I realised that one of the things that makes, made the book interesting to write is that while um, deliverology and those words are all new uh, and rightly scathing, uh, scathing, you know, scathingly referred to, 
the idea of doing delivery effectively goes back a long way. And so what I want to do in 20 minutes is just take you through the chapter headings and some stories uh, that relate uh, to the content of the book. Um, and then I'm, Jeremy and I are going to have a conversation and then feel free to ask absolutely anything you want to ask. And I want to begin at the beginning by um, saying, let's get this to work. So that, that's, the, that, that's the title uh, as, as read out. But um, th- there is actually a, a point in this book, um, which is if you look around the world, um, the absence of effective government causes misery. Um, you only have to look when it's gone completely in parts of Syria and Iraq or in northern Nigeria or Somalia to realise how, um, how miserable that is. But even in effective governments that you see in large swathes of the word cause misery, hold people back, prevent them fulfilling their life from fulfilling their lives. So I, I see this, not just the delivery units, but effective, accountable government as one of the big moral issues of our time. And if we could get that right, uh, so many more people would live better lives. Um, and the other thing about it is it's not a book that takes a political position because whether you want a minimalist state and low taxes uh, or whether you want a much larger state, either way, you want government to be effective. And this is about being effective, whichever side of that argument you're on. So that's the kind of perspective I've tried to take um, in uh, dealing with the book. As Jeremy said, priorities are absolutely um, fundamental in um, Delivering. So the first chapter of the book is called Priorities. If you don't set priorities, it's really hard to deliver anything. Uh, what you end up doing is running around, managing the latest crisis, trying to stay on top of things, uh, but rarely getting anything done. Uh, Tony Blair used to say, and I'm sure Jeremy heard, it say, say, heard him say it many times, there are priorities and things you have to do. It's not like running a business where you can sell off an underperforming unit um, or just not do it. Uh, but you the stuff you have to manage, and then there are the priorities, the things you really want to change. And the man who said that about socialism, but it's true about all government, is Nye Bevan. Um, some um, important Welsh people in the audience, Gwyn Bevan and his students, Alan Evans, my uh, mentor from long ago, uh, Morgan, my uh, son-in-law. So I thought I'd mention a famous Welsh person. But the language of priorities applies to all government, whichever perspective you take. Um, And this is how we thought about it. This is a diagram used in the Cabinet in 2002 at a retreat that Jeremy and I uh, were at with uh, a number of other Cabinets. There's Tessa, I think, who's probably there as well. Um, In Whitehall, the debate about how bold to be, certainly in the Blair era, was um, basically civil servants saying, uh, can we be uh, a little bit cautious and maybe we could do some more research? Or back then you could say, maybe we could try it out in Scotland first. Uh, All of those... (laughs) All of those, obviously, um, I know Nicholas Sturgeon was here earlier today, so it's got harder now to do that, but um, (laughs) the status quo. And then um, Blair and his ministers saying, we want radical, bold reform, let's go up the boldness. At our best, when at our boldest, his most famous, one of his most famous sound bites. But if you don't think about how are you going to get it done, the horizontal axis, all you do is have a debate about whether to defend the status quo or have a big row. And it's only when you think about how effectively you want to implement that it begins to uh, get uh, something more uh, impressive. And if you think about something quite marginal in terms of boldness, but just really well done, you can get some quick wins, some improved outcomes, some momentum into your government, and that is actually a really good thing. Uh, And if you uh, get the boldness and the execution right, you get transformation. 
And when we talked about successful delivery, that's what we meant. But this is a way of prioritising. What do you want to transform? Where do you want the improved outcomes? And if anything's on the green side of this, how do you get it across to the other side? Tony Blair used to say, a bit of controversy on the way to transformation is not a bad thing because it creates the political dividing lines. You get a good row, and that's an important way of generating political interest in the reforms you're making. But in the end, you've got to get into the blue side of this chart. So there's a whole section on priorities, and I've used... Britain, but I've also used uh, the Chief Minister of Punjab, my friend Fenton uh, Whelan is in the audience, who's been working with me for five years on the Punjab reform. He's been absolutely ruthless, the Chief Minister of Punjab, in prioritising education now over a four-year period. So this is important. The second thing is organisation. Jeremy went through uh, the creation of the delivery unit um, but, and, and it talked about how newly elected politicians... Um, find it really hard to get organised to deliver. You see again and again that the team that gets you elected is not necessarily or doesn't necessarily have the skills to deliver in government. Delivering an, an election victory and, and delivering change in government are very, very different things. You see it with Obama, you see it with Cameron, uh, and certainly you saw it with Tony Blair back in 1997. Um, this is what Tony says in his, um, his memoirs. There was a political confidence, even swagger about us. He's talking about 1997, but it was born of our popularity with the country, not our fitness to change it. So they knew what they wanted to do, but they didn't know how to get it done. And if they had drawn a picture of how they thought about implementation back then, it would have looked like this. And uh, so you make a speech, you pass a law, uh, and then through some mysterious process, somebody implements it on your behalf and then you get the results and you celebrate them and you go back to the people and claim victory. Um, but actually implementation is a lot harder than that and what we, we often say is getting the policy right is 10% of the task uh, but it's only 10% of the task. The really difficult bit is the 90% that is implementation. So then having talked about the priorities and organisation the book talks about strategy, and I want to spend a little bit longer on the strategy question. One of the people I refer to uh, is uh, this man, Nelson, a great strategist. Uh, before any of the big battles, including Trafalgar, his last, uh, Nelson, first of all, had a clear strategy in his head. Secondly, invited all the captains of all the ships to come and have dinner with him on the flagship in the days leading up to the battle. And the reason he did that is he knew that it would be like this in a battle. This is a quote from the author of, of, of the Nelson biography, a brilliant book. Communication could easily break down in sprawling, complicated encounters wreathed in smoke. You can imagine all these ships uh, out at sea, and they're all trying to read the flags on Nelson's flagship mast. It's very, very tough. You can imagine your, your own mast has been blown off. There's lots of smoke everywhere. So he went through the battle plan in advance with the captains, and then he said, but if you're in doubt... And if the battle plan isn't working out the way you expected, um, it's not really complicated. Just get in amongst them. Just attack the French. It's quite simple. So don't wait for a signal from me because that's your job. Whereas the French were all hanging around waiting to see what the Admiral put up on the flagship. And in the meantime, uh, the Nelson's captains were doing the job for him. So having a clear strategy and then having the flexibility uh, around implementation becomes important. And the book goes into some detail on strategy and it picks uh, up uh, very significantly the work of Gwyn Bevan, uh, uh, one of uh, LSE's uh, academic stars um, who's here in the front row. But basically, what I argue in the book, there's only five ways to reform anything. Um, and these are the five. 
So if you let's take a health service, one way, which is, or an education service, one way is to um, raise some money, give it to the professions, whether it's teachers, doctors, nurses, whatever it is, uh, and leave them to get on with it. And that was the default option for most of the post-war era. Um, and it's the default option now in, for example, Ghana's education system. 98% of the Ghana education budget is in teachers' salary. Teachers' salaries hasn't been a new textbook for 10 years, etc., etc. Um, what Gwyn shows is that while it's a default option, generally speaking, it's ineffective. Um, uh, and uh, Julian Legrand, another um, person strongly associated with LSE, argues uh, that that's because, however well motivated many professionals are, not all of them are, and self-interest overcomes things, uh, and generally speaking, it doesn't work. The only place it seems to work is in Finland. <clears throat> Finland's a place where everybody's tax return is online um, and it's a very unusual country um, and so what I say about Finland is it's fantastic for Finland but don't try this at home. <laughs> Hierarchy and targets is a really good way of moving something along if you have got a failing service and you want to make it better. Set some targets, uh, do it top down, a bit like the National Literacy Strategy to which uh, Jeremy referenced a few minutes ago. We'd had 50 years of plateauing literacy performance in uh, English primary schools. They got bumped up through hierarchy and targets. Another third way is choice and competition. You don't want to drive it from the top. Uh, in any case, once something's improved from awful to adequate, you can't kind of drive it to be great. Nobody can mandate greatness. You have to unleash greatness. And so choice and competition becomes an important way of thinking about it generate, give, give the patient or the, uh, the, the, the parent or whoever the user of the service is choice, allow competing um, uh, units to uh, compete amongst them, use the power of the state to act in favour of equity because equity matters in a uh, public service in a way that it doesn't matter in a general market and so on. Uh, and that was a big emphasis in the Blair administration, actually. And then there's devolution and transparency. Not every service allows itself to do choice. If you're running a prison service, you don't want choice in the service. If you're running an immigration service, you don't want choice in the service because there the government is acting on behalf of the whole of the public uh, uh, and so the consumer doesn't get choice. But devolving power to the front line, uh, as with the New York City police, holding people to account, publishing their results, does drive up performance. Um, and there's some great evidence of that in the work of Gwyn and his colleagues. And then the final option, not normally one you'd apply to an education service, for example, is privatisation. But if you're running an energy system or a telecom system, as many countries still are around the world, it's well worth thinking about. Uh, right now, uh, for example, in Pakistan, where the tax base is low, the demands of education are high, the demands of health are high, the army takes uh, a big chunk out of the, the small tax base there is, it would actually be a really good idea to privatise PIA and stop subsidising it uh, because it's a hopeless organisation and it's eating up money that you could better spend on cutting taxes or investing in the education system. So privatisation is an option, and the book goes into those five options. But the key thing is to remember that government has three roles to play, whichever of those five apply. Somebody's got to decide the, the, the strategy for the energy sector or the education sector. Somebody's got to manage performance. Usually in a privatised industry, it would be a regulator, but in, in a, a health department or an education department, it might be the government itself. And somebody's got to make sure that you have a supply of great professionals who are continuously learning and developing, uh, that they have the capability and capacity and culture to deliver the outcomes you want. And whichever of 
the top five you choose, or whichever mix of those you choose, government has to do that. And the word I use for the red part of this diagram is stewardship. If you're in government, your job is to leave things better than you found them. And then around the whole thing is community engagement and mobilisation. Um, you're more likely to achieve higher standards. This is a message for you, Jacob, if you do your homework. Uh, and it really helps if the parents will contribute uh, to the homework as well as the school. And the good thing about that is you get higher performance without it costing the taxpayer a single penny. The same is true if you can persuade people to give up smoking or eat a good diet or do their exercise or whatever it might be. So the more you can engage and mobilise the community, whichever of these reforms you're doing, uh, the more likely you are to get the kind of more for less delivery uh, that was referenced at the beginning. And then you come to planning. So now we've got priorities, organisation, strategy, and then there's planning. The most famous quote, my friend David Pitt-Watson drew this to my attention, uh, is from Eisenhower. In preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useful, useless, but planning is indispensable. This is the man that managed the preparations for D-Day with um, 7,000 ships and 12,000 aeroplanes and 160,000 troops and indeed a month or so later 3 million troops from several different countries and the egos of Churchill, Roosevelt and Patton. An amazing achievement. Um, and the planning is absolutely vital and in delivery units around the world that succeed they focus on the planning but not getting perfectly written plans that have glossy covers that then get put on a shelf, but real messy plans with coffee stains and marmalade on the corners and all of that. The other thing about a plan is you have to actually see how bad things are. You have to face up to the brutal facts, as John, could have put, John Cotter, the Harvard academic, puts it. William Hooper was in the Continental Congress in Washington in 1776, George, uh, sorry, sorry, in, uh, in Philadelphia, Washington had been built. George Washington was on, in New York. Um, he'd been driven off Long Island by the British, uh, and then he was driven on to Manhattan, and then the British burnt down what was then New York City. Um, and on the 20th of September, 1776, this is what William Hooper said, it becomes our duty to see things as they really are, divested of all disguise. And that's what they did while New York City burnt on the... Uh, south end of Manhattan, they um, worked out that the way they were organising their army was an absolute disaster. They were going to get beaten again and again. They completely changed their plan for organising the army, and then they retreated just one more time. Uh, but obviously, seven years later, achieved their independence. It was a crucial moment, and recognising the brutal facts is a key to that. Big part of planning is thinking through the delivery chain. Jeremy referenced the national literacy strategy. This is a good example of a delivery chain. Uh, one person for delivering, responsible for de delivering the results, that was uh, me. You, rem you might remember David Blunkett said famously that if that target wasn't met, his head was on the block. What people uh, know less is that after that, I said to him, that was a bit rash. And he said, no, 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 I've got to take responsibility because we're asking everybody else to take responsibility. It was actually a very serious point. And then he said, and by the way, if I don't go down, Michael, you're coming with me. <laughs> so uh, that was me. And then there was a director of the National Literature Strategy, a wonderful man called John Stannard, and there were 15 regional directors and so on and so on, and then 3.5 million children uh, at the far end of the delivery chain uh, in Widnes, Bristol and Penzance, uh, lapping it all up. Uh, if you haven't got this worked out, and if you haven't got the relationships between these people work, work, worked out, the levels in the system, uh, you're not going to deliver. 
And then there's trajectories. Up there is uh, the famous Tony O'Connor, uh, the man who's promoted trajectories across Whitehall more than any other individual, uh, probably trajectories in the world more than any other individual. And um, usually, Tony, this is your joke, um, if you ask somebody for a trajectory in Whitehall, they go rushing back to their department to get out their most sophisticated analytical equipment, which is called a ruler, and they do this. Um, Tony taught them that sometimes it might be like this, and sometimes it might be like this, and uh, many times it will have seasonal variations. But once you've got it, the beauty of it is you've got your plan, and you've made people think about what the impact of the plan on the outcomes will be. Uh, and then uh, you can monitor progress against the trajectory. And routines are then a key part. Government is driven by crises and events, uh, but it's routines that deliver results. Atul Gawande, who recently delivered the um, Wreath Lectures, says this, people underestimate the importance of diligence as a virtue, simply thoroughly working through how you're going to get something done. I completely agree with him. Uh, I think this is a really important insight. I want to uh, talk to you about MI5 briefly. Um, one of the things Jeremy said to me at the beginning of the um, delivery unit was, you need to write a monthly note for Tony on each of the priorities, like health or education. And at the beginning I was a bit cautious. I said, well, wouldn't it be better to write him a note when I've got something to say? And he said, no, no, you need to write him a monthly note. So I went back to the staff and we had that debate and uh, then we said, well, if we're going to write him a monthly note, we'd better write it really well, because why would he read it otherwise? So we worked on them, and we got them very nicely set up, and they began to flow. And I thought that Jeremy and I had invented the idea of the monthly note, but this was hubris, because I then discovered when I read a history of MI5 that in 1943 they had exactly the same debate in MI5. They said... Um, Churchill's not taking enough notice of us. And somebody said, well, why don't we write him a monthly note, uh, which they then uh, agreed they would do. And then they said, well, we'd better get somebody really good at writing to write it, uh, which they then did. And they chose their favourite writer, uh, the person who was absolutely brilliant at writing, and everybody loved him. He was called Anthony Blunt. And Anthony Blunt, as uh, some of you will know, was a Russian spy. So the irony is that from 1943 until the end of the war... Every month, Anthony Blunt wrote a note to Churchill, cleared it with Stalin, and then sent it to the Prime Minister. That is incredible. You could, if you put that in a novel, nobody would believe you. Anyway, and here it is. And, um, this, this was the first monthly note. This is an extract from it. In all, 126 spies have fallen into our hands. Of these, 18 gave themselves up voluntarily, and so on and so on. Um, and at the bottom of it, Churchill wrote, deeply interesting which I must say Tony never wrote on one of my monthly notes. Um, and the planning's important because you've got to get through... Sorry, the, 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 the routines are important because you've got to get through the implementation dip. With nearly everything, before it gets better, it gets worse. Uh, I, if not actually the outcome's getting worse, then the people who don't like your policy make a lot of noise. They get a lot of attention in the media, whereas you who like your policy don't get much attention in the media... Uh, and you've got to have the courage to get through it, and the routines are what drive you through the implementation dip, and there are plenty of examples of that in the book. And then, of course, once you've got your trajectories and your routines in place uh, and the courage to go through the implementation dip, you then need to solve problems as they arise. Here's a man who didn't solve his problems, Philip II, King of Spain. I love this sentence from Barbara Tuckman. No experience of the failure of his policy could shake his belief in its essential excellence. 
Um, Jeremy, have you ever come across that syndrome in government? Uh, uh, um, anyway, um, so, you know, the Armada failed. We all knew it would, but that's partly because we're uh, English, or some of us anyway. Um, and uh, so there it was. Um, that's not the way to deal with uh, problems. This is the way to think about problems. When I used to go to Russia, in, uh, when Russia was a happier place than it is currently, um, I started learning very small amounts of Russian. And my Russian friend said, if you're talking to government, there's really only two things you need to learn in Russian. Ktovinovat, which is who's to blame, and Stodeliat, which is what, what's to be done, Lenin's famous question. Except I realised in Russia, I hadn't realised this at all until I, I learnt it directly from my Russian friend. When you say what's to be done in Russian, actually it's more like, what can you do? It's a very, very different question. Anyway, so these are the two questions in a crisis. The problem is we ask them in the wrong order. So when something goes wrong, the first question is who's to blame, heads must roll, etc., etc., etc. And as soon as you start asking that question, it's almost impossible to solve the problem. You just dig deeper and deeper. So you've got to ask the what's to be done question, and if there is a blame question, come to it later. And I think the delivery unit, uh, the whole thing about the way we built relationships was always about solving the problem rather than allocating the blame. So getting these two questions the right way around is fundamental. And then you've got to decide how big the problem is. Um, we had four levels of crises. The, the level one um, resulted in a kind of timely nudge to the permanent secretary. Have you noticed you're off track? Have you noticed they're not delivering in County Durham or wherever it might be? Uh, through to level four, which is a full flat fully-fledged crisis. Jeremy and I organised two uh, where we used the Cobra briefing room, one to deal with street crime in 2002 and another one to deal with the asylum system going into uh, meltdown in 2003. But the interesting thing was, because we had this categorisation, after that we didn't have crises with these priorities because we could anticipate them, because we had the data and the routines and the problem-solving working uh, along. And there's lots of examples of crises dealt with in the book. And finally, there's irreversibility. How do you know you've succeeded? What is your legacy? Well, my friend uh, who runs the Harvard School of Public Health and former Minister of um, uh, Health in Mexico, he says in Mexico they secure their legacy like this. My predecessor was an idiot and my successor is a traitor. <laughs> uh, that's one way of attempting it. Um, uh, it may not be, oh, it may be uh, not totally appreciated by the citizens of your country if that's the way you go about establishing a legacy. More effective is Dalton McGuinty, the Premier of Ontario, very successful uh, Premier for 10 years, who says, I'm reminded of that Belgian car that broke the world land speed record in 1899. It was called La Jamais Contente. Never being happy, never thinking you succeeded, always more to do, never giving up. Uh, he was a, a paragon of uh, acting in that way. So one thing is not to uh, worry too much about your legacy, but to keep trying to change the system so that it delivers the kind of results that the citizens will actually really appreciate. And as you do that, to build wider and wider circles of leadership uh, around you, winning the argument, not compromising at the first uh, whiff of grape shot, seeing through until things are really going to uh, make a difference, and building from your guiding coalition outwards until people notice. And sometimes the yellow bit of this diagram and the green bit, the consumers and citizens, act to put pressure on the blue, red and black part, which is the system and is most likely to be resistant to change. So, coming to a, a conclusion at this point, 
I was thinking about, the, about where we are with the state of uh, British government, which is, um, has it ups and downs. Jeremy and I had a conversation in preparation for this where we thought, actually, it's not all bad. It's easy to get into the doom and gloom. There's actually some very good things about the, uh, about the British government. Uh, the civil service uh, has many, many exceptional uh, places. And around the world, people look to Britain as uh, a place to learn from, both because it has, on the whole, a high-quality civil service and because it's um, been quite experimental and bold in some of the reforms it's attempted over the last 30 years or so, uh, going back to the the Thatcher era uh, and the Blair era. So I thought this, that the the current government's actually been much more rigorous in taking an axe to existing budgets than um, we ever were in the Blair era, I look back on that. I remember a note probably that Jeremy asked for that we wrote to uh, Tony Blair in probably about 2003 saying, don't you think we might be increasing the health expenditure a little bit too fast here? Aren't we going to end up uh, uh, not getting the best value for all of this? Um, But on the other hand, we were much clearer. Tony Blair and that government and the ministers, Tessas in the room, were much clearer about the outcomes they were trying to deliver. Wouldn't it be fantastic if whoever wins the election put all that together in the way that Tony Travers was saying at the beginning of this and really focused on delivering outcomes in a clear way but um, really rigorous about taking an axe to budgets, which are particularly ones which are not failing. I'm not talking about reducing public expenditure but making sure that the money we do spend is spent well. Um, I use a slightly quirky example in the book of controlling public expenditure. My favourite king is John Rental, who's in the back nose, is Henry VII. Not because I think he was very nice or I'd want an evening out with him, but because of a stewardship factory. He took over a warring country in 1485 and left it in 1509 with a surplus. Um, And if Arthur had lived and we hadn't had Henry VIII, who knows what might have happened in the rest of the 16th century. But um, he had a guy working for him called William Empson, who was mean. He's the kind of guy you want as chief secretary. William Empson knew the law, and he went through line by line. He and Henry VII used, used to sit up late into the night in Whitehall Palace thinking about how they could screw more money out of this noble or that church or that uh, monastery or indeed the city of London. He was really good at that. Um, and he had a great career, and as long as Henry VII was alive, he was fine. Uh, when Henry VIII... Um, became king, he realised that one way to court popularity with pretty much everybody was to execute William Empson. So I'm not recommending the whole package, um, but you need a few people like that in the Treasury, uh, I think, uh, because we've got a deficit, uh, folks, and people still want uh, better outcomes and they don't want to pay a whole lot more tax. Um, So this is basically my conclusion. This is what we're moving from to, or what any government should be moving from. The government by spasm... I put this slide up in many parts of the world and everybody kind of feels very familiar with the red side of this. But if you can get to the green side of this, it is actually uh, uh, both a lot more uh, pleasurable being government, but most importantly, you deliver a lot better for the citizen. I'm going to give the last word to my favourite American president, Theodore Roosevelt. I love this picture of him. Um, Theodore Roosevelt was a great deliverer. First of all, he was chief of police um, and used to with a journalist friend of his, um, walked the streets of New York City at night checking the police were actually on duty when often they weren't. And he would go around in disguise and then the following morning he'd summon these police people to his office and say, what were you doing uh, uh, out at night with that prostitute or in that restaurant or that cafe? 
um, and they would tremble in his presence. But it was what Je- uh, Jeremy was talking about, getting out to the front line. He was also the first American president to realise how important executive power was to deliver a successful market economy. Um, and to me, that was a turning point in American history. And this um, sentence to me seems really important at this moment, not just I'm talking about Britain here, but generally around the world. The danger lies not in the, not in the least in the concentration of power in competent and accountable hands. It lies in having the power insufficiently concentrated so that no one can be held accountable for its use. If you take, just give you one example of that, the last two weeks, the way the United States has been dealing with Iran, uh, you see exactly the problem that Theodore Roosevelt was drawing attention to. So I'll give him the last word. Thank you very much for your attention. Okay, well, thank you very much, Michael, for that tour de force. I don't know, that, was sure that was a history lesson or a politics lesson, a government lesson. It was brilliant. Um, I'm sure there were lots of people wanting to ask questions, so let me uh, not hog the floor. But let me just start with um, one of the issues you came to quite late on, which dominates my life at the moment, which is the money. Um, uh, You said a little bit about that, uh, but obviously the issue facing uh, certainly the British government at the moment and many others around the world is we've still got a very large fiscal deficit, and therefore the prime challenge, of course, is to continue to improve public service outcomes um, but if there's a single challenge that's probably more important than all others until we sort it out, it is making sure that we actually run the government as efficiently as possible. So from the many insights that you've uh, given us, what would you pick out as the most important things for bringing all the brilliant work you've done to achieve outcomes with the equally important, as you say, uh, task of uh, delivering more for less and bringing that together in one place? There's a, there's a, um, the last chapter of the book, which I didn't go into, is called Other People's Money, because basically, when you're in government, you hear a lot of loose talk about government money. Basically, government spend, either spends uh, taxpayers' money straight out, so, or, or it borrows, which is spending future taxpayers' money. Those are the, really the only two sources of money. And so, uh, so, first of all, that's an important mindset. Secondly, it, scouring history for people who are really good at this. The person I came up with was the um, Old Testament Joseph, who um, the Pharaoh... Um, remember he has this dream seven fat cows and seven thin cows and he wakes up in the morning and says what does this mean and the court don't know but they say there's this guy in prison who's brilliant at dreams and they drag him out and throw him in front of the pharaoh and says tell him what the dream is and Jacob says well so Joseph says I know what this is you're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine Um, so you better prepare and he says you need to save corn for the seven years of plenty save 20% of the corn for, for, for seven years and then you'll be all right and the pharaoh actually is quite brilliant and it's all in the king james um old testament the pharaoh says well i know you're only 30 but i'm going to put you in charge of this and i want you to get out there you can have my second best chariot uh but don't stay in the palace get out there and appoint people in charge of each region to collect the corn so he's got a trajectory 20 percent a year he's got a delivery chain pharaoh joseph men in the regions and then people out collecting the corn um, and they've got a strategy uh, of seven years, and it all works. And um, Tony O'Connor would like this because in year three, it says he counted the corn until the third year when it was without number. So they're well ahead of trajectory. And then, and then the seven years is up, and the, 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 the famine comes, and what do they do? They sell the corn to the Egyptian people, no welfare dependency. 
And then people come from the whole region because the famine goes far beyond Egypt uh, and they sell it to them. They solve their balance of payments problem. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, and whereas, you'll remember this, Jeremy, we went around saying an end to boom and bust. I don't think I did. So there you go. No, you didn't. You knew. But anyway, so I'm just saying, I, so in, in the book, in other people's money, there's a whole section on delivering improved public sector productivity. And the key thing is to get the, this, this quote I had from uh, about the, the, the current administration, you've got to get the focus on outcomes that we had under Blair with the focus on controlling public expenditure from Cameron, and you've got to force departments to make the trade-offs by dealing with those two things together. And I think the Treasury, with the implementation unit that's now being powered up, could do exactly that in the next Parliament for whoever, whoever wins. One of the issues that um, uh, we face at the time... You weren't the only unit that was um, invented in 2001. Several other units were. There was a lot of jostling for power and so on. And people said at the time that, that Michael's methodology works brilliantly when you've got uh, an issue that is susceptible sort of to top-down, target-driven, driving through in a sort of Stalinist way. Um, now, you've given us quite a lot of emphasis there to five different strategic paradigms, if you like, or paradigms of strategy, whatever you call them. How do you respond to those who say that the methodology that you particularly pioneered in the UK is only good when you've got that sort of top-down approach and it doesn't really work in any other sort of paradigm? Yeah, I, I tried to deal with this quite a lot in the way of um, the written the book. And I, so, first of all, I think when you've got a very bad service and you want to make it better, you should be unapologetically top-down and do it properly um, because the citizens are frustrated and they want it to get better. But the, I don't think the delivery unit methodology depends on being top-down. It does depend on taking a perspective from the centre of government. Um, it does depend on having the centre of government being effective. And what you were saying um, in your introductory remarks is every Prime Minister has to learn that for himself or herself. Um, actually, Margaret Thatcher seems to have understood it more rapidly than the most, if you see it in her own terms. She was already turning people away and saying, I'm not going to do that till I've fixed this or that, right back in 1980 and 81. But you, you do need to, to learn it. Um, I connect it in the book to this, um, this whole set of evidence about how long it takes to become expert in anything, table tennis, chess, whatever. It takes 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. If you work hard as a Prime Minister, you've done 10,000 hours after about three and a half years. Um, and it's interesting that that's when, you know, the, the winter crisis of 2000, of 2000 was when Tony Blair learnt that implementation was tough. Um, I don't know how long David Cameron took to get to the point where he realised he needed implementation. So I think it's not top-down to say you want the centre of government to be coherent and influential. And indeed, if your main reform was to devolve power, you would still uh, need the centre to be coherent and you would you could use delivery technology to do that. If you, if you think about it, um, bringing in private providers in health, which we did, couldn't have been done if you'd devolved that out to the National Health Service. It needed the power, which is what Theodore Roosevelt understood back then. You've got to break the monopolies. You need a powerful government. Um, so I think, actually, oddly, a powerful centre of government goes really well with devolution. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, that's my answer to the question. One more question from me, and then I'll open it out so people should start thinking about their questions. The other big critique you've had over the years is, uh, and this was one of the reasons why the current government, I think, to be fair, was a little hesitant uh, to embrace the full methodology at the start, was that if you set priorities, which are, as we both agreed, absolutely vital in a way, set targets, you can end up distorting government so that people play to the target or because you've only got a narrow set of targets, what happens to everything else? 
and therefore you could end up improving those things, but only at the expense of other things sort of going by the by and resources get sucked in. So how do you, I mean, you've come across this over many years, clearly. How do you respond to the criticism that uh, the approach can lead to too much gaming, can lead to a distortion of policy, and you can end up, although succeeding in some areas, only at the expense of some other areas? Well, um, it's an important question. And the first thing to say is um, that, you, you know, government really can be better, can get better, and there's lots of things you can do to make it better. So just bear that in mind, because it's not a zero-sum game. If you're focusing on one thing, something else is going to get worse. The second, the second thing is what we used to say, so in, in crime, if you're talking to the police about reducing crime, when we did the big street crime initiative in 2002, they said... If you give us some more money, we'll reduce the rate of increase. And we said, no, 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 we, we want it to go down. Uh, and they said, well, we'll be able to get it to go down, but all the other crimes will get worse because we'll have to move police from that to this. So we said, OK, we'll check. And the interesting thing was in the police forces where they did best on reducing street crime, the other crimes fell as well. So the first thing to do is to anticipate what the negative consequences might be and then check those as well. And then you, if... if if they don't turn out, you can, you can win the argument. And if they do turn out, you have to decide whether the trade-off is something you want to play. Um, so that, that's important. And then, clearly, you've got to have priorities, but that doesn't mean you should stop thinking about all the other things. And after all, there's all these departments of government with lo- large sections, and they do need to be anticipating risks and thinking through about the areas that aren't the priority for the centre of government. And so the quality of departmental management is, is really important. But I've never... Um, also, the last thing is, once you get the delivery stuff working, um, you can spread the knowledge of how to do that beyond the priorities. So the learning, people will move in the civil service, uh, the learning about how to get things done can be spread. I think one of the most powerful things of that original delivery unit and um, some others that I've seen is they become a centre of learning about how to get things done. And you then need a process for building the capacity right across government. The other point I would make is that what's the alternative? The idea that we're going to spend all of this government money without holding people to account for delivering certain outcomes uh, yeah. you know, whatever the flaws in the process yeah. and you've addressed many of them there actually the alternative of having no targets and no required outcomes is, right. is a pretty extraordinary situation. Right and, and in fact one of the classic um, failings in the debate in government is whenever you propose something there are lots of people who will come up with the argument against it but the risks of doing nothing are never calculated. Yeah absolutely. Right now who wants to uh, can I ask Michael some questions? Yes sir. Do you want to say who you are? Yeah. With the microphone coming your way. Take two. Let's take one at a time. But, um... <laughs> Donald Davidson. Um, well, soon after the delivery unit came into existence in 2001, Tony Blair, of course, was directly responsible for launching the NHS's National Programme for IT, a disaster which cost an estimated £12 billion. I've heard bigger estimates. So just for that, uh, rather ironic, seems like a good idea to a delivering unit, but didn't, didn't, didn't do, work, do very well there. So what's your comments about, well, lessons to be learned from, the, from that, dis- that £12 billion disaster? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's a good question. I, I was going to, I was going to hand it to Jeremy, um, uh, but, but I could see by the way he looked at me that it was coming my way. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful book by um, Anthony King um, called *The Blunders of Our Government*. Um, you know, when you buy a book, if you've been in government, I don't know if you. Uh, certainly, in my case, this may be just me. Um, I look in the index 
uh, to see if, if you're written about. And this one, because it was called the Blunders Old Government, I was really quite pleased to find I wasn't in the index. I'm slightly offended that they hadn't noticed me, but, um, but, but, but pleased on the whole, given the title. Um, and they give, a, they, they give that account of it. Um, and they say some very sensible things in there. One of, one of, one of the phrases that I like in that book, and uh, I talk about this in, in my own book, is that in some cases there's a deficit of deliberation. It's not properly thought through. Um, and the delivery, this may be an example of Jeremy's last question, actually. The delivery unit didn't focus on that. We were focused, some, some of my former colleagues in, in, the, in the audience, we were focused on delivering the A&E four-hour wait, uh, reducing waiting times for... Uh, routine operations, making sure that um, cancer and coronary heart disease uh, care was delivered uh, of higher quality uh, and more rapidly. And we never really got ahead around that. There was a separate part of government, I think called the OGC at the time, that was meant to look at the big IT projects, and it should have been picked up on there. And one of the things that I remember saying to the people who ran that was, you keep listing for Tony all these IT projects and you rank them on a, a yellow, a green, yellow, red scale and they're always all red. And after a while, if they stay red, that says something about you, uh, not just about the rating system. Like if, we, if, we, if we had a red in a delivery thing, we're trying to make it better with that department. I think there wasn't enough action to solve those problems. They were just that the centre of government was kind of logging that this thing wasn't working, but they weren't getting stuck in and fixing it. I mean, we have now moved on. I mean, yeah. the PMDU was not responsible for vetting IT projects and major projects, as Michael just said. We now have something called the Major Projects Authority, which is one of the learnings that we've sort of developed over the last 10 years uh, to apply similar sorts of methodologies to major projects, major capital projects, including IT projects, uh, not to just simply to sort of policy priorities. Um, so I'm not saying that that would necessarily have picked it up, but at least we've now got a methodology in place which requires people to get each stage of a project properly approved by the Treasury with the support of a, a separate Cabinet Office assurance team. Um, so I think we're beginning to learn the lessons from that as well. Right. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Gwyn Bevan. I'm deeply embarrassed with all the nice things you said about you, Michael. Um, the question I have Gwyn, is... as long as you keep doing research, that's why it works. I'll keep saying nice things about you. The, um, I teach here, and we have a lot of students from middle-income countries. And as you say, Britain's been a great laboratory for reforms, and of course the delivery unit being a key one to, to look at. I'm very interested in your experience in the Punjab and in middle-income countries where the institutional basis is much weaker than here and how you get these systems to work and what you see as the key learning and differences from working in England. Thank you for the, thank you for the question. And, and I do commend uh, Gwyn's work. And, and um, I, I won't go into it in detail, but the, the research allowed by the devolution of power to Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland in the late 90s allowed what um, Gwyn and his colleagues call a natural experiment as, as four countries had broadly the same approach uh, health uh, and to some extent education diverged and, and they were able to compare the effects. In Punjab, the, and, and Fenton, my uh, friend and colleague, is in the back row, um, what, what we found, and this is an important part of the book, the, the thing is uh, the, the eight lessons or the eight chapters in the book, they apply whether you're talking about a developing country or a developed country. And I don't think there are many books that talk about government across that spectrum. There's a whole lot of stuff about development 
uh, and there's a whole lot of stuff about developed countries, but I'm trying to bring that literature together. What we found is the prioritization of the chief minister, the chief minister's attention to detail, the collecting of the data, the drawing of trajectories, the preparation of plans, the persistence, even when things get, uh, get, get difficult, and seeing it through make a huge, huge difference. The, the most difficult, and, and we, we found um, that we were able to pull together around education, in the end, a team of really quite strong officials who Jeremy would be proud to employ. Um, and they've done a wonderful job. But we had to stop some basic things that were the norm back then. Um, we, when corruption, when we discovered corruption, we named it. Uh, when there were secretaries and permanent official, uh, officials changing every two months, we said, we can't do it if you do that. Um, we started collecting data from all 60,000 schools every month, um, which we still do. Um, and so we had this base of data on which to, 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 to judge progress. And Fenton and I will be in Lahore in just uh, 10 days' time doing our 40-something stock take with the chief minister, reviewing the data, looking at the maps. We do these maps of the 36 district of Punjab, which ones are delivering on, for example, school buildings or water running or electricity. We put them in front of them. He says, these maps are beautiful. I'll sleep with them under my pillow. He loves them. Um, and we track progress. And we've been skilling up the civil service. So the delivery, the team that Fenton and I have led, uh, has become... A, uh, a, a strong team, it changes over time, but it's at the core of this driving progress. So all the things that work, work in Punjab just as they would work in Wales, Scotland, England or Northern Ireland. Yes. Michelle Clement Kings. Um, in his autobiography, Tony Blair notes that one of the oddest things about being an ex-leader is realising how much he didn't know when he was leader and how much he's learnt since. Does this resonate with you? Um, yes, it does. And thank you, Michelle. I should say Michelle is um, a wonderful PhD student who, among other things, is um, editing my diaries. Um, uh, so... Um, you the so, answer, then. So... Um, not only uh, does it resonate with me, but you'll find out more about what I thought than I know uh, when you read what, what I wrote down back then. But, the, um, but yes, that is, that is, um, that is important. And it's, it's, it, it'd be nice to live life backwards, but unfortunately you never get the chance. And I think what is really important, um, given the need to deliver and the need for government to become effective, um, is for leaders at the beginning, I talk about this in the book, if, if they could get the right um, if they could just find the ability to learn from the people who've been through it at the beginning and it doesn't necessarily mean somebody of the same political persuasion but somebody's been through the pain of trying to get big things done or has overseen an IT project that turned out to be a disaster like the, 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 the guy in your front, front of you mentioned Those, the, the pain of going through failure to deliver is something, maybe you just have to learn it but actually it would be so great if early on in a premiership, um, wherever you are in the world, you could really learn that stuff. And I have had that experience with a few uh, leaders around the world. So Dalton McGinty, who I quoted, who is Premier of Ontario for 2003 to 2013, was a great learner at the beginning. Um, I went a couple of times to Canada, but he built a team of people who were constantly in touch. They came to visit the delivery unit. And he was very open to that, and it really, it really paid off. Najib Razak, who became Prime Minister of Malaysia in 2008, 
um, I think, um, at a transition, not an election transition, actually made a point of trying to absorb how other governments had done delivery set goals and all of that right at the beginning. It is possible to learn it, but there'll always be a sense of, I wish I'd known that back then. Just in terms of the delivery and its own sort of <clears throat> learning experiences, I mean, obviously it's been largely a success, but there must have been one or two failures along the way. I mean, I, for example, remember trying to at one stage give you the impossible task of sorting out opium production in Afghanistan, which wasn't a complete success. Um, but what, what are the things that, that you've learned from by way of things that didn't go quite so well? Yeah, I left that out of the book. Um, the... the um, and it, it, was, it was the far end of delivery methodology. Um, and there, there was one time, I, I don't know if I, I should say this on the record, there was one time when we discovered that in a whole chunk of um, Afghanistan they had in fact got rid of all the poppies. Do you remember this? No. And it turned out that... <laughs> I don't remember it at all. He's very easy. He's got... Uh, anyway, um, so, so I was thinking, delivery success, finally we've done it. But no, no, it turned out that the warlord who run that bit had such a big stockpile that he was worried about the price falling, so he cut his own <laughs> poppies down. Uh, so that was difficult. Um, so, yeah, there, there were, there were, there were uh, lots of um, things that were... I mean, that, that actually was beyond delivery, delivery methodology, but I think we, um, we definitely struggled, eventually got there to get the, 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 the trains to run on time. Um, I think that, that just that whole sort of chaos around that was difficult. Um, we had difficulty at the beginning with reducing road congestion. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, there was no data. We went to see the Department of Transport and said, how do you collect data? They said, we've got 12 people who drive around the country. They call in every two years and say it's getting worse. Um, Just change the definition. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we, we, uh, that, that was... There were, there were two or three targets where once we got into it, you just couldn't do it and we dropped the target or, or whatever. Um, so they, they, they were difficult. And then, I don't know what um, Fenton would say, but in Punjab, we've done really well on getting the kids to turn up, uh, the kids to enrol, the buildings to be fixed, the teachers to be there, the textbooks to be there, but really driving up learning outcomes. We haven't done it yet. We wrestle with it on our phone call uh, every week and we've got a big plan for the next year. It's really tough. So... It, it, it doesn't always succeed. I think what I'd say about that, though, is you have to keep at it. And so uh, uh, there's a lot of celebration of the improvement of London schools these days, um, which is um, right and just and has been a big success, partly for government, partly for teachers, partly changing uh, socio-demographics and all the rest of it. But, but the way I think about it is we uh, closed down Hackney Down School, which was horrible. We intervened in Hackney and made a mess of it. We intervened in Islington and sort of got it right. We had a thing called uh, Education Action Zones, which failed. We had a thing called Excellence in Cities, which was quite good, but not great. And then we had the London Challenge. But we couldn't have done the London Challenge without the failures on the way. So one thing is, if you believe the thing is important to change, is to stick at it and to learn from the failures. Learn from the failures, absolutely. Right, some couple more questions. <coughs> yes, madam. Oh, Next, Pakistan. Uh, Mike, I want you to answer Jeremy's original question, which is why delivery isn't sustained in government. This seems to me really an important point. Uh, you, you know, we can all go away and read your book, uh, and maybe some prime ministers will be influenced by it. But until you build into the culture of governance a bit more deliverology, uh, there is going to be an endless struggle and, I suppose, permanent employment for you. 
By, by the way, uh, I was the person who got given the Afghanistan opium job. Ah, <laughs> oh, if only I'd known you then, Adam. Um, Adam was, uh, was one of the, uh, the, 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 the... He was High Commissioner in Pakistan uh, for, for four of the years that I've been going there. Um, and as I always say, when meeting Adam made me proud to be British. But, um, but on the question, it is really important. And I think, the, I think it's even more profound than, than you then you phrase it, because you've got to embed that kind of delivery thinking in government. And actually, I think and Jeremy should comment on this, but I think there has been some progress on that over the last decade, uh, but, 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 uh, uh, but more to do. But you've also got to get it into the system, that the health service or the education service. What I found now, people, when I, when I, um, on the rare occasion I visited a GP for my own health back when I was running the delivery unit, I just got, and the reason it was rare is not because I wasn't ever ill, it's because I couldn't face the GPs uh, complaining to me. Uh, uh, But now when I go, they say that was a golden era. And I said, well, you didn't tell me that then. (laughs) So you've got to to embed the thinking in the the systems, in the big public sector workforces. And um, on Saturday, I'm speaking at the Association of School and College um, Leaders event, which is their annual conference. And I've been reading... Uh, I won't reveal them because they're, they're just in draft yet, but the speech that the President and the General Secretary are going to give, they are brilliant. They're what you want. They've absolutely adopted that kind of mindset. We're responsible for improving the system now. We're going to have a dialogue with government about how to get that done. And I think that's the ultimate goal. And probably the hard truth is, is it takes a long time to get that kind of culture shift, much longer than you might think. So you've got to, uh, you need leaders who will build delivery units, you need civil services that will adopt delivery thinking, and then you need public servants who will uh, ultimately uh, want to take responsibility for driving up the performance because that's the right thing to do, and it's the best way to persuade the taxpayers uh, to invest in you. Um, the traditional way for a public service union to get money is to say how awful everything is and why don't you spend some more money. But actually a much better way would be to say, we're doing a fantastic job, why don't you invest in us? Interesting. All right, Tessa, you wanted to comment? You probably saw the delivery unit from the other angle, having it done, having it done to you. <laughs> as, a, as a supplicant yes. um, in the face of the, delivery, of, of the delivery unit. I just wanted to make um, two or three points by way of reaction to, I mean, such a challenging um, presentation by Michael. The first is um, the importance of leaving ministers in their jobs for long enough to see through Um, a very clear and defined uh, policy because policies that become orphan policies that nobody cares very much about don't really work and they don't get subject to the kind of critical uh, reappraisal and self-confident drive that uh, gives them the best chance of success. So I think that's a frequent mistake and um, it was a mistake often, frankly, that uh, Tony Blair made, uh, let's have a reshuffle, let's move people around because that will divert attention from something worse on the six o'clock news. But leave ministers in post and make them responsible for better or for worse um, for what they do. And then you also have ministers judged by uh, the achievement or failure of the delivery of a policy rather than you know, having been Secretary of State for X, Y, and Z. So I think that's the, I think that's the first one. And, you know, within that, building teams uh, that then feel a shared sense of 
ownership for the policy. The second, which I think is a really interesting challenge, which is uh, the the, um, dynamic change and progress versus cuts argument. Very few governments, and especially in the present climate, are given the latitude to stop doing things without facing the kind of onslaught of cuts, um, protests. But it's a very pessimistic view of the purpose of public expenditure because public investment is supposed to alter, meet and then alter the nature of need, which means that in a well-run system, you release money which then is reallocated elsewhere. And so my starter for 10 on this is why are we continuing to uh, invest, what, £26 billion a year in tax credits. I would accept the childcare tax credit from that, which is a direct transfer in almost every case from uh, the responsibility of the employer to pay people properly to uh, government. And if that money were released um, in a sort of dynamic way, you could begin to get real change in the relationship between welfare recipients and um, the funding of welfare services. And there are lots of others um, besides. I'll just very 30 seconds on something which is incredibly dear to my heart, and that's Sure Start. When um, I uh, set up Sure Start with Gordon Brown, and nobody quite understood uh, what it was about, except it seemed like a good idea, um, the, the evidence to underpin investment in the very early years of a child's life was nowhere near as developed as it is now. But the evidence now of investment in the development of children before they're born, support for new parents, right up to three, the first thousand days, is absolutely unanswerable. And then, of course, the neurological research now that shows that for children who are in trouble, there can be a second chance at uh, between 11 and 13. So we should be more literate in incorporating this pretty incontrovertible evidence into the big spending decisions that we make and make commitments for the long term. Great. Michael, just comment on a couple of those points. One is on um, reshuffles, and I agree with you about, um, about putting ministers in positions and, and, and on the whole leaving them with three or four year, year run. Actually, in, in this administration, has done rather better on that than, than, than previous administrations. Um, I once met um, Tony as he'd just come out of his office after a reshuffle, and I said, you've forgotten Atlee's phrases. And he said, what were they? One is, it it was a man of few words, he only had two phrases for a reshuffle. One was, you've had a good innings, and the other was, not up to the job. Um, And um, I I think the... That's that's important. I think your point about evidence is really important. uh, One of the things that... um, it's very, very important is to build, and it goes, goes back to the question about IT and the deficit of deliberation, is to build into the process of governments um, 
having the right people in the room with the right evidence in the room at the point of decision. And that's partly about data systems, as Jeremy said, and it's partly about understanding the research and having it synthesised in ways you can use it, and partly about making sure that literally the right people are in the room at the point of decision. And I think that's not an easy thing to do, but it is very, very important. And the research you quote on Shawstar is obviously very, very... Um, or on that, that whole field is very, is very powerful, and uh, so I, I completely agree with you about that. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you about uh, longevity of ministers, but I think it's equally true of civil servants. And one of the things that we're trying to do much more of now is keep people in post for three, four, five years until the project is complete, whether it's a capital project or a a ministerial programme. Nothing, as you know, Tessa, nothing annoys ministers more than just getting used to a civil servant who's doing a brilliant job for them, and then they have to get promoted um, you know, so we're trying to find ways of keeping people in post for longer so they can stay with it and that improves accountability as well and and I think this point on evidence is really really important because I think one of the things you missed out Michael was that your whole sort of numeracy and literacy thing in the world, it wasn't just a sort of you know, a content free delivery chain it was based on some real knowledge of, of how to improve literacy and numeracy so you have to start with a, a, you know, a hypothesis as to yeah. how things actually need to change then, of course, the mechanics can sort of come into being. But unless you've got that understanding to start with about what policy change you want to make, um, That's you true. Know, in a sense, the whole thing is sort of content-free. So it's a very good uh, reminder. We're running out of time. Michael, you've given us philosophy, theology, politics, governance, development economics. It's an absolute tour de force. I'm sure everyone would like to join me in saying thank you so much. And-